Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of Escaping Rock Bottom, the podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Lee. Uh, for those of you who are watching, you can see right now I got a special guest. His name is Otis. I'll introduce him in, in just a few minutes. If you're listening on Google, Spotify, or iTunes, thanks for joining the podcast today. All about experience, strength, and hope in recovery. Otis, mm. thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. I really appreciate it. I always love... Uh, talking to new people, always about their spirituality and their recovery. How did you do it? Take me back to the beginning of your story. Take me back to that first trauma or when you first started escaping with drugs or alcohol. Were you a drinker? Were you a druggie? Yeah, uh, I'm a bona fide alcoholic, even though I tried every substance I could get my hands on. You know, and it, it started out as a kid, you know, and I've heard this so often in, in recovery. I never felt okay. I was this little skinny, awkward, kind of buck-toothed little kid in school, <laughs> terrified of girls. Oh, my life's not working. I wanted to give it up. I mean, from the very beginning, I had this sense of anxiety, not fitting in, not being part of, Brandon. And so they took me to a little social affair at school, and some of my partners had, had got a little pint of bourbon from their dad. And I would go anywhere to do anything with anybody. I go out there, and they says, try, you know, a little shot of this soda. So I take a couple of hits of this warm bourbon out of the bottle, and it tasted awful. I go, why would anybody drink this stuff? It's horrible. So I finish the, little, the, the three little drinks, and I go back inside to the little party, and uh, suddenly I feel this exhilarating, almost electrical fire shoot through my body. I go, oh, my God, what is happening? Overnight. I became the party animal. Hey, hey, girl, come over here. Let me talk at you. I'm partying. I'm not afraid of anybody. Big guy bumping me. I go, get out of the way. I go, I have fell in love. I go, is life this good? And then I said this one thing to myself. I go, no wonder my dad drinks all this stuff all the time and goes to jail. I'd go to jail for this, too. And I did. <laughs> but, you know, it was my first experience with alcohol. But it was a pleasant experience. I didn't have any problems. I drank all through high school. Had a great time, graduated, 1959, not much to do, and I saw a sound downtown. It said, travel, foreign lands, adventure. Oh, you know that strikes a chord with everybody. With the I go, I want, whoever Uncle Sam is, I want to find this guy. I'm in. So I go down to the closest recruiter and I sign up. And then that's when my journey started. In the military, it's a perfect place for an alcoholic. Everything they do is wonderful. You can drink, gamble, chase women. Occasionally they kill some people. So I mean, was, I go, hey, this is okay. Oh, I had a great, you know, eight years in, in the military, but Vietnam kicked off and it got kind of rough, man. And I got back from the Nam and things weren't too good. And by that time, I escalated my my uh, my drug use up to the alcohol, and I'm in bad shape. Uh, and uh, and things kind of fell apart rather rapidly. And uh, I did a geographic to California. Oh, the, the beginning of the end. Where do I end up at? Newport Beach. Now, a brother like me in 1979 in Newport Beach, flying the buttermilk, not looking good. I'm drinking and drinking. They go, uh-uh. Hey, uh, we're rolling you down to Orange County Jailhouse. <laughs> you know, I go, what? I'm just partying a little bit. They go, no, no, jail time's coming. And, and that was the end. I had, you know, lost my marriage back at home, no job, no money. I'm in jail. I'm getting out of jail for the third or fourth time, and I'm going, hey, you know, something's got to be different. But fortunately, they had, the judge looked at my rap sheet and says, you know, I'm going to send you to AA. 
I went, oh my God, not AA. I knew about oh, AA. You, you, you're like, throw me into the slam. Don't, uh, don't make me go to I'll AA. go to jail instead of AA. No. <laughs> like in Africa, they have a place where all the elephants go to die. It's called the Elephant Graveyard. AA is where all the old honky winos go to die. I know this. I, I seen the picture. A good looking brother like me with the honky winos in Santa Ana Main Street Alano Club. Oh, I had hit rock bottom. It was over. I had nowhere to go and nothing to do, and they were the only guys that would take me. I go, Otis, you know, God is punishing you for sure. He puts you with the honky winos and Santa Ana and the Lano Club. What was it like when, when that judge sentenced you to AA and recovery? What was, what was that first meeting like? What was that experience like for you then? I was amazed. I mean, I truly was. I, I couldn't believe these guys. First of all, their honesty and openness, man, just blew me away. I'm going, hey, you know, if you don't tell anybody, they won't know. Oh, they're sharing all about their alcoholism, where they've been, and jail, and losing family. I'm going, stew, keep quiet. Don't tell nobody this shit. Stop, man, no. I was amazed at their honesty. And this is the thing that got me. They were all laughing. I go, what are they laughing about? So these guys are laughing, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, having fun. I'm sure they're doing some kind of drug. I go, I want what they got. I know they got something in here. And they says, no, this is a spiritual thing. I went, oh, I'm in trouble now because I know God ain't liking me because everything that you're not supposed to do, I like. You know, I know God is not in my corner. You know, it's so interesting. When I went to my very first, um, when I went to my first AA meeting, I was just fresh out of a, out of the hospital in a coma. The doctors there had brought me back to life, and the nurse yeah. goes, you need to go to this place. And it was this mm-hmm. little old church. Right. And they were having a meeting at this church. And I didn't, I wasn't a church folk. I was like, I ain't walking into that damn church. <laughs> uh, I did. And that, you know what's interesting? You said that you saw people laughing and smiling, and I ended up, I ended up meeting um, a group of guys there that night, and they invited me. They knew it was my very first meeting, mm-hmm. and they invited me to go play softball the next morning at seven thirty in the morning. And they came and picked me up. And when we went to go out there and play softball, you know what? You know what I noticed? Huh? These guys, they look like me. They're tatted up, and they're all laughing, mm-hmm. and they're all having a good time, and they're all sober. Because I had, in my mind, if I gave up alcohol and drugs, I'm never going to laugh again. Like, I'm never going to have a good time. But that's the twisted thinking of an addict in their Mm -hmm. active disease. Yes. And that is the beautiful thing that I saw on day one of going into a recovery room was that people were laughing and they were having a good time. Yep. I call it the laughter and the love. Two words changed my whole life. They had this sign on the wall. It said, we care. I go, you guys really care. They go, we care, Otis. Let's go to coffee. They took me out. You know, they talked with me. They told me to come back. I was amazed at their openness, man. You could almost feel the care and the loving in the room. And so I think what got me uh, uh, caught up in AA was the laughter and the love. Those was the combination that had been missing in my life. I had not laughed for a long time. There I was thought no when I was when I was using and I was uh, high on drugs and I was getting wasted, I thought I was having a good time. I thought I was laughing, but it was never a genuine bellyache laugh that I experienced today. And I try and tell people when they're new to the rooms because they have a legit fear that they're never going to laugh again. They're never going to have a good time. And I can only tell them I have laughed harder sober than I ever did when I was in my active drug use. 
I would have to agree with you on that one. It, it's an amazing thing. I'm still in awe of it. Forty years later, I'm still in awe. Okay, so yeah, how much time do you have sober now? Yeah, I've got over 40 years. Over 40 years. That is so incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. That's amazing. And I, I was the most unlikely person. I'm here on a court car. I'm this Afro-American in Santa Ana, crazy out of my mind. They're, they say, this guy's not going to make it. I was not on the high list of people who were going to get sober. But those guys just surrounded me, man, and told me to come back, and they got me a book, and they found somebody who was willing to sponsor me, and I just kind of followed directions. You know, you were talking about um, the service you did to our for our country yes. and, and representing our country and fighting for the freedoms that we all enjoy. Did you, now that you have 40 years sober, and I'm sure you've done multiple step work throughout those 40 years, yeah. have you ever identified a trauma that you felt really kind of amplified your drinking, amplified your drug use? It was one thing, um, I, I was in the uh, Air Force Material Air, Air Command, and I had I worked on the aircraft that brought all the bodies back. I'm standing on the ramp, and I'm seeing all the coffins of these kids coming back, and it just broke my heart, man. I mean, I almost cry today when I, when I think about it. And they were kids, and I can remember uh, when they're going over there asking me, what's it going to be like? And I'm looking at them, these fresh kid, 18, 19-year-old, innocent kids that have no idea what they're stepping into. And uh, and I can't be reassuring, and I'm saying, ah, well, it's going to be okay, not knowing that a lot of them weren't going to come back. And uh, unloading those coffins, man, was, I think, was the thing that pushed me over the edge. And uh, especially when I got back, when we came back from Vietnam, we did not get a hero's welcome, man. They were spitting on us, calling us the baby killers and, you know, anti-war people out. You were there fighting for your country and seeing your brothers die, and then you come home and you're the lower than scum i go you know i i'm I'm through i'm just checking out i'm gonna block all those feelings out i just gonna you know drink and drugs and just forget about it because it's not worthwhile i think if anything pushed me over that was the thing that pushed me over the edge you know i i ask people that because i i know from my own experience that it was untreated traumas that i didn't work through that I believe just continued to propel me into my addiction. And my trauma was sex abuse, child sex abuse, when I was molested as a child that was untreated, right? And and that, to me, was really the abuse that I suffered as a child that was untreated, and I buried it down deep and built a fortress around me. And what I I notice in in speaking to people in in recovery is that, at some point, it's like we suffer these traumas. And, mm-hmm. and I tell people, it doesn't matter if it was child sex abuse. Mm-hmm. In your case, mm-hmm. watching these brave young women going over to fight for our country, coming back in graves, mm-hmm. and you're seeing that, and then not to be treated with a hero's welcome when you come back. But we almost all cope with it with drugs and alcohol as a way to escape that trauma. At what point did you... I, I know the court sent you to AA. When, when you were working through the steps... How long did it take for you to start to see the miracles of sobriety? Um, it was a while because I, I, I was I knew the obsession was coming back. I was shocked that I was having this temporary reprieve by going going to meetings, but I was just sure that it was coming back because it always came back. And I know those feelings were going to start to come up when I wasn't drinking, and I didn't know how I was going to deal with those feelings when they started to come up. But amazing enough, they would come up 
But as long as I shared about them in a meeting or shared with my sponsor, which I had no one else to share with, the sharing allowed me to vent that pain and let go of it and be okay with it. And they kind of understood and, and it started to make all the difference in the world. The, the more I could just talk about it and express it with someone who just had a listening ear, who just cared. They weren't giving me advice and it wasn't no psychotherapy bible because I didn't believe in that stuff anyhow. But they just listened to me, you know. And I don't know, through that process, I was able to, you know, handle those feelings when they came up. And then my sponsor got me involved in the, in the steps. And I think my life really turned around when I truly was willing to turn my life and my will over to God. When I says, okay, God runs this stuff. I don't. Whatever happens, happens. I'm not going to try to fix anything or change anybody anymore. I'm just going to let life be what it is and enjoy what time I have left. And, uh, you know, and I learned how to kind of live in the moment, you know, 24 hours a day, one day at a time, and, and just let stuff go. But it, it took a while. It was, it was probably through my first year before I really got comfortable. That first year was just one day at a time. I would go to the Atlanta in the morning. <laughs> I would stay there and, and drink coffee and pool. I'd come back at noon. That's just the only place I would sleep, and I'd come back at night. The only time I felt like I wasn't going to use or I didn't want to kill myself or I didn't want life to end when I was in a meeting, I don't know, something happens inside those rooms. I, mean, I feel like God shows up. For us, because he knows we're the lost ones. But God shows up. I get through that day, and over some time, it just slowly got better. Has there been a time, uh, you know, somebody who has a heck of a lot more time than I do, but has there ever been a period of your time in sobriety where you felt the stigma of being a recovering addict has maybe been used against you, or maybe you've had to go even above and beyond to prove your worthiness? in this society that we live in? Yeah, well, you know, I'm already feeling better enough. Being Afro-American that grew up in 1942, 1950, back of the bus, you can't eat here, you can't go to the school, you're never going to be enough. So I had enough stigma to start with. And then you threw alcoholism and ex-con and, and, and a veteran in there. I mean, I, you pick your, your poison at this point, man. Um, there was a lot of things that just weren't okay. And being an alcoholic was the final end of all those things, you know, which I mean, because we had a real negative social stigma on alcoholism at that time. We were the guys in the raincoats in the you know alleyway with the brown paper bag kind of person, if that's what you were an alcoholic. And, uh, you know, and being an Afro-American alcoholic, well, I mean, I, I, I had really buried it, you know, to the end. I had no value, no worth, and there were no opportunities for me. You know, I didn't... I, I'm 37 years old. I have no job, no money, no career, no life, and I want to give it all up. <clears throat> and this guy says, oh, there's only two things you got to do. I go, what's that? He said, stay sober and help another alcoholic. I go, that's all I got to do? He says, yeah, and the rest of your life will take care of itself. I go, you're kidding me. He says, yeah. He says, well, you know, how are you going to earn money? I go, I don't know. He says, well, you know what? They have this alcohol drug study program. You can go there. I go, they pay you money to talk to people. You mean, I'm going to talk to Brandon over here. I suppose you don't get sober. They pay you anyhow. I talk to him. They give me money. I go, I'll never work again a day in my life. So I just stumbled into it. Because what do you do professionally now? Yeah, professionally now, I'm an alcohol and drug um, counselor. I have been for the last 38 years. It's the only thing I do. I work with alcoholics and drug addicts. And I, I have this gift, and it's really a gift, that I can connect with you and 
five minutes we talk and we're best of friends. You're my brother. We're going to do this. And I can inspire and motivate people to at least take a look at recovery. So that's what I do. I help people. And you know what recovery. I love? I love, First off, you know what I love about that that story is that when I, when I first got clean, they sent me to um, the LGBT center and they sent me to the me- mental health unit. Yeah. And this was right when I got out. Um, out of the coma and finally got released from the hospital and it was a few hours before I went to that first AA meeting and I went to this uh, this mental health crisis center in in Hollywood and they had me meet with this counselor and I'm sitting there in this office and I'm telling this counselor um, everything that I had done leading up to that point really that last month of just chaos and I'm talking to him telling him all the crap I was doing and you know what he did he looked at me and he said this why are you so angry? Mm. And I said, what do you mean, why am I so angry? I'm not angry. He goes, why are you so angry? Mm. I looked at him and I said, listen, man. I said, you can talk to any of my friends. They'll tell you I will do anything for them. I will be there for them. And he looked at me again. He goes, why are you so angry? And I, you know what I said? I said, if you say that one more time, I'm going to walk right out of this place. And he didn't give me another chance. And he, he said it again. He goes, I want to know why you're so angry. He goes, because somebody who loves himself would not be doing the things you've been mm-hmm. doing to yourself. Yeah. In a matter of five minutes, he was not a therapist. He was mm-hmm. not a doctor. You know what I ended up finding out? Mm-hmm. This counselor was in the program. He had 15 years sober off of crystal meth, the same drug that I was playing with. Mm-hmm. All it took was another alcoholic mm-hmm. to look into my eyes, mm-hmm. cut right through all of my bullshit, and mm-hmm. call me out. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, the gig was up. That's all it took was another alcoholic. So when you say you have that ability and that gift to connect with so many other people, it's because that's the beautiful gift that your higher power has given you of sobriety. Yeah. That now, alcoholics, we have this special gift that we have this way because there is nobody else who can say, I know what you're going through. Mm-hmm. A doctor can't no. tell me that. Many psychiatrists can't tell me that. But another alcoholic can say, brother, I've been there. And you know what I can say is, yeah, you have. Yeah. How'd you get through it? That's the name of that game. I love when I talk to people and they say, well, how do you know so much about me? I go, I'm just talking about myself. <laughs> and they look at me. So true. That's all I do. I it's tell you so about true. me and you think I'm reading your, your, your life story and I'm just telling you about me. And that's the beauty of it all, man, that we had this magical thing of uh, one alcoholic or addict talking to another it's the only thing I know that, that reduces that obsession and allows us to kind of function and kind of reconnect with ourselves. What is your um, what is your life like today, 40 years sober, compared to what it was? Oh, sometimes I pinch myself. Here's my favorite thing. I'm coming down Coast Highway. I'm going past all the big houses on the hill. I'm in my convertible Mercedes Benz with my shades on, and I'm rolling down Cali, and I'm going, Otis, at the brothers in the hood, see you rolling down Coast Highway, <laughs> looking up, waving at the nice little white people, man, and saying, hey, how you doing? And this is my hood. This is my hood right here, you know. I'm going, they would go, who are you robbing, and what have you gotten up to? I go, boy, they would not, they know I'm up to no good. And some days I just smile and go, if you only knew, 
from where I come to where I am, and I know God did it all. I just smile, and they go, why are you smiling? I go, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. <laughs> what's, your, what's your connection? I always tell people, too, um, you know, I, w- I didn't believe necessarily in God when I first got sober. I had resentment toward religion mm-hmm. and all, like, organized religion. And that when I first got sober, it was really tough for me at the very beginning to conceptualize a higher power or, higher, or, or a God. Uh, clearly, I have a strong connection to my higher power now that I've worked the steps. What do you tell to a newcomer who comes in to recovery who may not have a relationship or who may not be spiritually fit? How? What do you say to that person? Because spirituality is a huge, huge part of recovery. And I always tell people what keeps me from another drink isn't necessarily a, an AA meeting or a 12 step meeting, but it is that spiritual connection that I have with my higher power. Yeah. Well, I tell you know, cause they, they have a lot of resistance. I says, okay, whenever you hear the word God or higher power, I want you to put the word love in there. Hmm. I want you to say, hey, love can restore you to sanity. Love will allow you to stop something. I've never heard somebody explain it to me like that. And they look at me. I love that. And they can't argue with love. I go, we all want to be loved, and we all want somebody to love. But love will carry you through this, man, because that's what you're going to find in those rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So let that be your higher power for now until you find something else. Yeah, and you know, my sponsor, similarly, uh, my sponsor said, you know what, Brandon, just go in there and just listen to people share their stories. Uh, Listen to people, listen to what their stories is, and identify the people who have something that you've always wanted. Well, I wanted, you know, I I always listen to people in recovery who have successful relationships, right? Because that's what I want from myself. I want to one day get married and I want those things in recovery and sobriety. And so I, that's exactly what I did is at the beginning is I made other people in the rooms. Your story is my higher power today. Your story is getting me through today and keeping me from using. Um, And eventually over time, my sponsor had me doing uncomfortable things like praying, you know, oh. getting on my knees on the side of my bed. I could not pray in the shower. I could not pray while I was already in bed with my head on the pillow. <laughs> I had to pray on my hands and knees on the end of my bed because it was the act of doing, right? It was the actual act of getting there, being focused in that in that prayer. And eventually, after about like eight or nine months, it worked. Like I was like, oh, my God, this prayer shit really works. Like it's. I feel it now. I feel it. So yeah. it was kind of doing that uncomfortableness of, of what your sponsor tells you to do. I know. I used to tease my newcomer. I says, look, we're not going to even charge you to pray. It's not like I'm going to charge you $5 a prayer. Bro, you could do this for free. <laughs> if it don't work, you haven't lost anything. Just get down there and pray and see what happens. It's free. It doesn't cost anything, and you might get lucky. So what do you got to lose? And you, I love that. And I've also, I've also had this conversation with somebody. I'm like, hey, listen. The bar, it's going to be there tomorrow. Like, that bar is going to be there tomorrow, okay? So today, let's just not drink today. And if tomorrow you really feel like you want to go booze it up, then go booze it up. That bar will be there tomorrow. But let's just get you through today without drinking. I hear you, man. My favorite joke with all of them. I said, look here. I got my sponsor. I told him I couldn't do this. I wasn't going to make it. He says, Otis, if you stay sober today, that's all I'm asking you to do. I will take you out drinking tomorrow. I'll buy you a fifth of Jack Daniels and I'll get you some a little blow. I go, I'm in. I go home and rest. I get up the next day. I come running and I go, Kit, I'm ready to go. He says, where are we going? I go, we're going to go drink. 
He says, what did I tell you? I go, you told me we were going to drink tomorrow. He says, that's right, we're going to drink tomorrow. I go, well, tomorrow's today. He goes, no, today is today. We're going to drink tomorrow. I go, wait a minute. He says, we're going to drink tomorrow. I've been looking for tomorrow for 40 years, and when I find tomorrow, I'm going to get drunk as a skunk as soon as I find it. If you find it ahead of me, Randy, will you let me know when you find tomorrow? I'll let you know. All right. I'll let you know. I'll be searching for a long time probably. Yeah. Uh, You know, as we we begin to kind of close, what's that level of advice, something that you've learned along the way that you like to pass on to people? A majority majority of the people who who watch this podcast or listen to this podcast, Otis, a majority of people have never made it into a 12-step recovery room. Right. These are people who either have a loved one who's suffering and they're trying to figure out what they can do. So they're listening or they're in their active addiction trying to figure a way to get out of it. So what's a little bit of advice that you can kind of pass on to somebody who is struggling and looking, looking for help? Uh, yeah, and my advice is it's it's almost simple. It's so simple. It's it's it's, it's almost elementary, you know. If you want anything, if you want to learn anything, if you want to do anything, you know, the first thing you do is find someone who does it well and ask them how to do it. You want to be a skier? Go find someone who can ski. Don't go up on the mountain like I did by yourself. You'll break your darn neck, you know. (laughs) Don't go try to hit the golf club without somebody to teach you. So you want to get some, find somebody who's done it, who's done it really well, Mm -hmm. follow their advice. And it's going to be as easy as one, two, three. But do not try it on your own. I guess the biggest thing is to be humble enough to ask for help and then accept it when it comes. That's a beautiful message. And uh, it's one that I will echo to the end of time. And I tell my sponsees, well, they've chosen me if they're already my sponsees, but I tell people in the rooms, choose somebody that has what you want. If If you see somebody in the rooms and they look happy, Right, they look bright. They've got this this bright spirit about them. Go up and speak to them. Go up and talk to them. How did you do it? And why, how are you smiling today? You know, just as simple as how are you so happy? You know, ask somebody. You know, start those conversations. And I tell anybody, I don't care how far down the scale you have fallen. I don't care how dark your past has been. It does not matter. You can have anything you want. You can build the most beautiful life, a life that you truly felt was impossible. And you can find that for a dollar a meeting. And you might get a free cup of coffee with that. And a free cup of coffee. And if you had a really good meeting, there's a lot of good donuts and good snacks there as well. (laughs) Otis, I got to hug it out with you, my friend. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the laughs. An honor and a privilege, man. And one thing that taught me, keep laughing and life will get better. Yes, it does. Keep smiling. I I love this. What what an amazing treat to have Otis on the podcast. Thank you, everyone who is watching and listening. Uh, Share this on your social media and your Facebook pages, escapingrockbottom.com. We'll see you back here next week.